that was kneeling uh, beside his bed with his mother and his grandmother one night, and he was softly saying his prayers with them. And he said, dear God, please bless mommy and daddy and all the family, and please give me a good night's sleep. And suddenly he looked up and he shouted, and don't forget to give me a bicycle for my birthday. And his mother said, there's no need to shout like that. God isn't deaf. No, said the little boy, but grandmother sure is. Today is part two of why we pray, or why do we pray, and the subtitle is like, really, why? And, and it's a question that I think it's good to be asking ourselves in these days. Why do we pray? I mentioned two weeks back that uh, when I was getting into this, I, I expected to do one message on prayer, and then as I got into the study and the preparation of it, I realized that there was more like two messages here, and, and they were actually... Um, quite different, and so it deserved a part two. Part one, we were looking at the Lord's Prayer uh, that focused on our individual prayer life and, and talking about being in the secret place. And part two now shifts to more of a focus uh, intentionally on prayer together in the body. And something has happened over many years and like I'm talking decades, if not even longer, maybe even into like a century in the Western church where the prayer meeting has become this, it's become to be known and seen as the thing for pastors, elders, leadership, and maybe the prayer warriors and the prayer intercessors. And it's, it's kind of their thing and it's kind of this specialized thing for them, but not, but not for everyone. It's, it's just kind of for some. And I hope that you don't see prayer together in that light. But if we're inclined to that view in any way, I want to begin this message by asking you then, and asking us together, what do we do with Acts 2.42? Where it says there, speaking of the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, there's some presuppositions around this verse. That is, that all of Scripture is to teach, train, and guide, and form us. Another way to say it is, it's meant to be prescriptive for our lives. It's training us. And these are these were core practices of the early church that have been embraced by the church throughout history. As the church has moved on through the ages, this was embraced decade after decade, century after century, generation after generation. They've been embraced for foundational, as foundational for life together. And no matter how many hermeneutics, hula hoops you might try to do with this verse, this is speaking of prayer together. It doesn't mean something else. And when it says there that they were devoted, that word there in the Greek, it means to endure, to persevere, to remain faithful to. It speaks of diligence, of persistence, of it being constant. So they were all in, so to speak, when it came to this. Nothing else was taking precedence in their schedules. They were devoted to prayer. So, what do we do with this verse as it relates to prayer together? If we desire to apply the word of God to our lives, what do we do with this verse? And it warrants the question, where 
have traditions or practices in our church cultures taken precedence over what scripture reveals to us when it comes to life in the church. And not, and not just prayer, certainly prayer, but other things as well. Where have other practices taken precedence? And, and typically, it's kind of easy to tiptoe around this in the church, to invite, to encourage, to keep inviting people to prayer, to just be winsome about it, like, come on. I read Francis Chan's latest book recently, and one of the things that kept hitting me over and over and over again as I read it was how helpful at times it is to be bold. And, how, and, and, and his boldness was challenging me. I was challenged as I read things. I go, I need to hear this. This, is, this can be hard. This can feel like, wow, did he say that? And yet we need that. And it even might be uncomfortable at times. But why did the early church devote themselves to prayer? Was it because it was the Christian thing to do? Was it because Peter and John kept getting up and making announcements about it and, come on guys, we gotta do this? Was it because streaming services and smartphones hadn't been invented yet and so they just had oodles of time? Or was it something else? Now we know it was an ongoing practice for the Jewish people They had cultivated going to the temple together to pray. It was part of their life together. They had sowed prayer together as a discipline into their lives. But what motivated them to pray? We we see throughout Acts that the church was motivated by the belief that prayer was impactful in their lives, and in their witness, that they needed to pray in order to be sustained. So why do we pray together? Like really, again, asking that question, why? Why do we do that? And I think that we can have standard answers at the ready, so to speak, like, they, like if we're asked that question, we can kind of come up with those, that we're, and we're inclined to give those to that, this question, but I want to encourage us right now to keep ourselves from doing that right now. Just suspend that, if you will. And rather, I want you to think about it like this. If someone approached you and said something to the effect of, so as a Christian or as a follower of Jesus, why do you, why do you people like to pray together? Why do, you, why do you need to pray together? What would you say to that? Do we know how to answer that? I want, to, I want to help us with that today because I think we can leave here today actually having an answer to that question, but more importantly, that as we look at that, that this will stir us to the importance of prayer together. So why, why do we pray together? First, it's to build our faith. I want to read from Mark 11, uh, verses 20 to 24, and then we'll... Look, I want to look at what it says there. Mark eleven twenty to 24. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. 
Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. I'm not going to actually touch that last verse. That's something kind of separate. But the backstory to this is Jesus had cursed a fig tree that had leaves, and thus it had the appearance of fruit, but it had no fruit. And so Jesus had come upon this, and it was a warning to God's people that they had the appearance of fruit, but not the real thing. And so Jesus cursed the tree as a physical object lesson to his disciples. And so it was upon returning that way later that the disciples realized what had happened. And they're like, the tree's completely dead. Look, like Jesus cursed it and this worked. Like it's not, it's not healthy anymore. And Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't respond by explaining the reason that he did that anymore. He doesn't, he doesn't dig into that any further. Rather, he speaks of the faith that enabled him to do this. And he invites his disciples to embrace and live with the same faith. Jesus, he's not speaking here of moving literal mountains, like speak to a physical mountain. Removing mountains was a common phrase in the Jewish culture, it was a Jewish idiom, so to speak, of removing or overcoming any difficulty. And so this was what Jesus was saying. He says, this is an invitation to pray for anything. There, there's nothing that you cannot pray, pray for, he's telling his disciples. There's no difficulty. No matter how big, pray for it. Have faith. It's an invitation to build our faith as we pray and believe that God can do all things. Jesus is inviting us here to see prayer as effectual and powerful. Jesus revealed his command to the fig tree was a result of prayer made in faith. It was trust, confidence, and reliance upon his Father. And Jesus is encouraging us and inviting us to embrace his way of the kingdom. This is his way. He's saying, have faith in God. And we grow this through prayer. This also speaks to what motivates us to pray. When we ask, what will motivate us to pray? It's faith. Faith is a massive part that you must have in order to want to pray. Belief that God rewards those who seek him. We grow faith through God's word. We get into scripture. Our faith is, is growing through that. And prayer serves to increase our faith as well. As we say, yes, God, I believe that you reward those who seek you. So I'm gonna seek you in prayer. Now, this isn't to interpret to this to mean, look, if you, if you pray hard enough and you really believe that no matter what you pray for, God's going to give it to you. He's got it because you just, you had enough, you had enough umption to pray for this and you had enough faith. This isn't about sending positive thoughts or energy or having a positive mental attitude. This is about faith, confidence, and trust in the God of heaven and earth. 
and his promises. And of course, this happens when we pray as individuals, absolutely. But there's something tremendous in how this plays out when we pray together. Countless times, I I was thinking about it this week, I can't even begin to calculate the amount of times over the years when praying together where I'm thinking about something. There's something that the Holy Spirit, I've got in my mind and I'm thinking about how I would pray this and the Holy Spirit's Spirit's nudging me about something and boom, all of a sudden a person that we're praying with will pray almost the exact same thing. And I'm like, how did that just happen? Like, that's amazing. Or you're praying together and as others are praying, God is, is speaking through them as they're praying and impressing things upon us that we wouldn't have thought of. And you're like, Oh, and and it's the Holy Spirit speaking through that person. And it's something that doesn't happen, cannot happen, when you're praying alone. And in all of this, in all these various times and examples, there's times where when you come to pray together, you can feel the tangible presence of the Holy Spirit and faith building as we're praying together. And And the Lord is moving through us. And there's few things in life better than when you're praying with people who are full of faith and expectation alongside you. And you can feel it. You're you're praying together. You're seeking the Lord together. And there's something about praying together in those times that does not happen when you pray alone. So we pray together to build our faith. Second, why do we pray together? To sustain us to sustain ourselves and others. So Ephesians 6, the end of that letter, speaks of putting on the armor of God. There's this imagery of the various elements of the Roman soldier's gear that we put on, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, all these things. And we're meant to see this within the context of Ephesians, of what Paul was writing there. Living out this cosmic reconciliation of the gospel and its impact in our lives. We shouldn't see Ephesians 6 and those verses as just sort of a special subsection that we take out and go, oh, that's a section on spiritual warfare. And we'll just kind of put that by itself. It's, It's meant to be seen within the context of what is being written in Ephesians. Because what Paul's saying is this is the reality for all of those in Christ. This is addressed to the church together, actually to multiple churches he was writing that letter. And the imagery used is important. This isn't about going on the attack. In fact, the, the, uh, the attack weapons that a Roman soldier would use, they were the twin javelins, they're missing from Paul's armor. He makes no mention of them. Because this wasn't about going on the attack. This was about standing our ground. He says three times there in Ephesians 6, stand therefore. It's like he's wanting to say, we've taken the hill. You've taken the hill. You are raised up with Christ. You're seated with him in the heavenly places. He says that earlier in Ephesians. You've taken it. You're there with him. Now stand. Stand against the attacks of the evil ones. Now, He's saying you stand with Christ. The ultimate victory is won, yes, but the battle rages on right now. And we must defend what Christ has accomplished for us. He says there, again, stand. Stand against the enemy. 
And so, after speaking of the spiritual armor, that's sort of just my lead up here. I want to read a few verses here in Ephesians 6, verses 18 to 20. After that, he says the spiritual armor that we must put on for protection. He goes on and he says this. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it, declare it fearlessly as I should. So within the flow and the context of the Greek, Paul is not saying here that prayer is the last piece of armor or that it completes it all. He's not saying either of those things, but what he's saying is that prayer is closely linked with the entire set of gear that you've put on. He's like, it's saying, he's like, there's this fusing of the gospel that you've put on and prayer. Spiritual understanding that is combined with alert prayerfulness. It's about infusing our lives with prayer. That prayer covers all of it. There's, that we're creating a culture of prayer. That we're thinking prayerfully. That we're submitting and laying all things before the Lord. And this is speaking to the church together. The necessity of prayer. Paul's talking about this against the schemes of the devil, which he's talked about earlier in Ephesians, and he's talking about now again. He's saying, he's talking about resisting Satan, combating his schemes, prayer guarding us against his plans and helping us to stand against them. The entire focus of this armor is to that end, standing against Satan. We've taken the hill, now stand in what you have. And prayer surrounds all of it. Prayer is so, so exceptionally important. And it specifically calls us to pray for one another. Paul's in prison and he's asking the churches who are receiving this letter that they would be lifting him up in prayer together. And what's so astonishing here with what we read is that from what Paul's written in this letter and other letters, that he believed that prayer in the churches was the means by which he would be sustained and able to accomplish what God had purposed for him. He needed people to pray for him. And one great danger facing the Western church, and it's not new, but its danger has new variants, if you will, is spiritual individualism. Personal faith that puts little to no value on connection to the church. It's completely unbiblical. It's foreign to what's lived out in the New Testament. And COVID and the expansion of online church, very helpful tool, but is a real danger to this. The inclination to see online church as a replacement for the gathering of God's people together. Doesn't, that doesn't align with the commitment that we see to one another in Scripture. It's not about an individual, isolated, online faith. Our unity 
and love for one another is lived out in our relational commitment to one another, in our being together, in our doing life together. And this is why the current restrictions that we have right now should leave us longing for what is missing. And it's why I think that it's okay and it's good to admit we feel the tension and the danger in this right now. That there is tension and danger in what we, the restrictions we have because this is not what the church is meant to be. Our witness to the world is not just about individually sharing our faith. It is that. But it's actually also the gathering together as God's people and living so radically together that people are seeing that and they're drawn to us going, there's something different about you as a people. That is what we see over and over again in the New Testament. This has always been God's design for his people. Ever since he called the Israelites, this distinctiveness that draws others. This is to be the church. I want to read two, two verses uh, three verses, actually, from the New Testament. First, 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's spoken to the church together. Ephesians 3.10 and 11 says there, His intent, God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Is God's intent to use COVID to further isolate his church, to drive us onto more online platforms, more individualized, more consumer-driven church models? Or is he stirring us to see the need for the church and how technology, yeah, can be used to reach into homes that need to hear the hope of Jesus and need to be stirred by what they see in the church, need to be stirred by what they're seeing online and how God is moving in the church. And so there is also great opportunity. We're praying together more these days than we ever have because of Zoom. We're gathering more to pray together simply because of the Zoom platform, and it's great. And prayer together, being devoted to it together, is one of the foundations for us. And that flows into my next point. Why do we pray together? Third, because we're the church. It's simple. We pray because we're the church. We see throughout Scripture an emphasis on prayer a practice pursued together. For Jesus, prayer was both an individual practice that he had with his father, but he also spoke consistently of prayer in the plural. Clearly, his followers saw prayer together as something to be embraced. They, they did it together all the time. This is where how we approach scripture, either is simply descriptive or prescriptive, will largely influence our response to this. Are we just reading something that happened or are we reading saying this is prescriptive for our lives? And if scripture is simply descriptive, then it largely has no impact for our lives. We're just reading something that happened. That's great. That was back then. That was for then. That has nothing to do with my life now. 
That's not how we respond. We are the church. Scripture is the word of God. It's alive and active and powerful today. The church prays together and we are the church together. The Apostle Paul, he spoke of prayer often for the churches as something he did alone. We see that in Ephesians 1.16. He says, there, I'm remembering you in my prayers and with others. Colossians 1.3. He says, we always thank God for you when we pray for you. Paul encouraged the churches to pray together for him and for others. 2 Corinthians 1.11, he says, as you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Paul wrote of prayer together in the churches. He desired for it to happen everywhere. We see that in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy 2. Prayer is to be the go-to, in fact, for all sickness, for all illness. Elders are to anoint with oil and pray for people when they're sick. James 5.14 says, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. In verse 16, it speaks of confessing sin to one another and then praying for one another together. We could, we could spend an entire message and beyond just systematically looking at all the references to prayer in the New Testament. Prayer permeates the New Testament. It's everywhere throughout the New Testament. It's, prayer's not an add-on. It's not something simply to be tacked on at the beginning of meetings or at the beginning of a mealtime. Nothing wrong with that. But it's, prayer is meant to be the life source for the church. We, we, in fact, we should not expect to accomplish anything together if we are not praying together as the church. Now, perhaps you may say, well, that's a little naive or that's a little out of touch, Paul, with the 21st century. Maybe it's even like, ah, it's a little bit too legalistic. And that's, that's not my intent at all. But I'm convinced that we must be led in obedience to Scripture and what it says about prayer. Prayer in our lives, individually and together, must be a core practice of the church if we desire to live according to Scripture and to see God move amongst us. It's, it's far too easy to read Scripture and to interpret it through a cultural lens or through what's widely been accepted or is being accepted, the norms around us, and and having little to no consequence or effect in our lives, where we're just kind of viewing it through what the normal sort of standard thinking of the day is. I want to read something that Francis Chan said in his latest book that I referenced. He asked this, he says, would you say that prayer plays any meaningful role in the life of your church? If prayer isn't vital for your church, then your church isn't vital. This statement may be bold, but I believe it's true. If you can accomplish your church's mission without daily passionate prayer, then your mission is insufficient and your church is irrelevant. Those are stirring and challenging words. And, and you might be inclined to say, who is he to say that? Like, who, who's Francis Chan to say that? But... What does the New Testament reveal to us about prayer? 
Does it reveal that it changes and transforms us? Does it reveal that it's absolutely necessary to fulfill the the calling of the gospel? Does it reveal that it's powerful to change situations? I believe the answer to all that is yes, absolutely. And so I want to conclude by touching on that to end this morning. And uh, maybe this point seems a little bit um, like, like I'm going for a certain amount of shock value, but I'm really not. The fourth reason why we pray together is to have our minds blown. And, and I say that, I'll, let me unpack that a little bit. Ephesians is regarded by the majority of theologians as the closest thing that we have to a dissertation from Paul on his theology. It's, it's the, the tightest sort of wrapped up thing that we have that really outlines um, his theology that he preached. And it encapsulates a broad and grand theology for the church and for those in Christ. It's an incredible letter. And within that letter, we have two prayers that are written by Paul that he prays over the church that he's writing to them. As he's writing, he's, he's, he's putting these prayers in and praying it over them. And, and I've been struck lately by the idea, I've been listening to some podcasts too, that we need to read whole parts of scripture more in the church. To, it, it helps us to caution ourselves from cherry picking verses and, and risk taking them out of context and just allowing scripture to permeate us as the church. There's two prayers within Ephesians that Paul prays over the churches. And the interesting thing is each of them, there are quite a few verses, but each of them is actually just one really one long run on sentence in the Greek. He doesn't, like he's not pausing at all as he's writing. It's just he keeps going and going and going in the Greek. And what it, what it really shows us is they're, they're taken to be read in full. They were, they were one sentence. When you stop and you take in what Paul's praying over the church, it reveals the magnitude of God's plan for the church. And one aspect of prayer, I believe, is being able to have our minds blown, so to speak, metaphorically, with the purposes of God that he has for his people, while at the same time revealing to us the importance and power of prayer for the church to align us with the heart of God. That as we, as, we're, as we pray this, it aligns us to what God's purposes are for his church that he's revealed to us in scripture. Which is why being in scripture so that it flows into our prayer is just such a gift and is so key. And I want to, before I read these, I want to I just suggest these are not simply words on a page. They reveal reality beyond even what our senses can take in. They awaken us to the depths of God's power for his people, and they're supernatural. These words are fused with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so this is a little bit different. I know this is a little bit different than how I would normally want to end, but I want to, I want to simply end today by reading these prayers over us. And I want us to receive them as the early church would have received them, simply by listening, not following along, not looking at words on a screen, simply by listening to what's being read. They're truly phenomenal prayers. And 
infinitely more when you consider that these words that we're going to read are for God's, they're God's prayer for the church right now, for us. So I'm going to read first from Ephesians 1, verses 16 to 23, and then I'm going to read a section from verse 3 as well. Actually, sorry, verse 15, but it doesn't matter. You're not following along. You're just listening, so it doesn't matter. Verse 15, chapter 1. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches. He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for those words. We thank you for your heart, for your church. We thank you for your purposes, for your church. We thank you that they will never be stopped. They will never be hindered. We thank you that they will never, ever, uh, in any way, uh, happen outside of your control. Everything is according to your purpose and your plan. We thank you that we can be part of your church. And Lord, we thank you 
for the ability that we have to pray together, to seek you together, to be the church together. God, we, we ask in these days that you'd help us amidst these restrictions, amidst things that leave us asking a lot of questions. Lord, help us to wrestle with that tension, Lord, and to long with expectation for your church and what you want to do through your church. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you that you are above all things. You're seated high. You're lifted up. And that we're raised up with you. You invite us there to be in your presence. Thank you, Jesus. We love you.